You are listening to the Grace Church of Mapton podcast. This week's sermon by Andy Juris covers Jonah 3. Thanks for listening. Good morning. So, uh, there's a few of you I may not recognize. I'm, I'm Andy. I'm one of the elders here at, at Mapton. Uh, Adam, our pastor, is gone, so you get me. And you'll notice that the whole Bobbeth clan is not here. I don't know what that means is what they think I might say. Um, I, uh, uh, so early in our relationship, uh, I was doing my own laundry. And my wife, Jen, uh, was watching me do, I think we were dating at the time. Yeah, okay. And, uh, uh, and I swear I'd wash sweaters in a washer and then put them in a dryer and it worked out fine. I, I really thought that I'd done it before. And she happened to be over visiting when I opened, you know, it's like, okay, we're going to go out to dinner and that's great. And my roommates are milling around. And, and uh, I said, let me get the laundry out of the washer first and, uh, uh, or out of the dryer first. And I pulled my laundry out and I held up my sweater and it's like a four-year-old could wear this thing. Um, and I just, you know, it's like, I, I, I remember just kind of standing there like it's magic. You know, what happened? Because it was like perfectly scaled. I mean, it looked fine, just like my sweater, just just made for a four-year-old. And uh, so needless to say, she laughed and mocked and jeered at me for a while. And, uh, uh, and since then, that kind of established in our relationship that I'm not allowed to do laundry. Uh, occasionally, I'm told to get things out and put things in, but... but but really, that, that, that has now been officially overtaken. Uh, I screwed up so badly. So maybe if the only message you got from what I have to say to you today is there is possible to screw up so badly good things happen, you know. Um, I, you know, several years ago, I, I did my, uh, probably my first message to you all. And I said, you know, based on that lesson, I wonder how badly I could mess this up and not have to do it again. You know, so any complaints, feel free to tell Adam. It's fine. I, I won't hold it against you. So here we are on our second week in our little study of Jonah. So in the past, we've had elders get up and give various messages to fill in. This is kind of the first time that we have preached a series. Uh, and so uh, it's kind of been exciting to work with uh, Everett and Cole. Um, I don't like really, I, well, actually, I do like being between them because, you know, you start out good with Everett. You got me in the middle. You can forget that. And then Cole's going to finish us off next week in the last couple of chapters of Jonah. We're looking forward to that. Um, Jonah's an interesting little book for several reasons, okay? Oh, and if I'm a little overanimated, I'm sorry. I'm used to teaching junior high, high school, and sometimes that takes a little, you know, extra extra loud voice. Um, These reasons that Jonah is an interesting book. For one, first, this book is treated by many in the church as a nice story for children, and it is. It's one of the foundational stories that we talk about in Sunday school. And uh, Everett did a great job last week walking us through the first two chapters of Jonah, where we saw that uh, we saw God's command to him, we saw Jonah's disobedience, and we saw God's pursuit God's pursuit, that was one of Everett's big uh, points, God pursues us. And so a lot of times these are the themes that we tell children in Sunday school, that God can and does correct his children when they disobey, uh, and that the consequences of that uh, disobedience can be extremely unpleasant, and, uh, and that he brings that to us. So 
uh, often there we, we stop. We stop there. It's a nice story, right? It's a nice story. It's one the kids, you know, wow, big fish, you know, he got swallowed by a fish that's pretty weird. And, and, and it is a weird story. It's one that the kids can kind of grasp onto. But so often that's where we stop, at the nice story, okay? And I, as I researched Jonah, I came across uh, several articles written for pastors by other teachers that stated that the book of Jonah shouldn't be treated as real. It should not be treated as real. It's a great story, and that we should be able to use it to teach and instruct, but that any attempt to present this as real or factual should be avoided, because it sounds weird. Uh, and there are those outside of Christianity who would agree completely with this view. Uh, Jonah's a book often held up for scrutiny, okay? is one that uh, presented as evidence that the Bible is allegorical in nature, okay? It's a, it's a selection of stories that teach us lessons about how we should live our life, but it is not a true representation of anything factual or historical, okay? Um, these stories, people say, well, what, we're, you know, they were applicable to the Jews of the day, but no longer carry a lot of significance in our modern times. Society's changed, things have changed, and it's kind of one of those ways people kind of dismiss the Bible. So for these reasons, and probably more, Jonah is often referred to by serious biblical scholars as the most maligned book of the Bible, the one that people talk about uh, uh, probably the worst, in the sense of it's held up as evidence to discredit God and make the Bible irrelevant to our lives. Who would believe this thing? And it's unfortunate that apparently, per my research, there's some among the church that feel this way today. Now, and this is different than wondering how this all worked and if it really happened, okay? I mean, how, how did God work this fish thing? I've done that. We all do that. So uh, I, I believe firmly that we serve a God who asks us to ask him questions, okay? Okay. It is, we do not serve a God who says, believe this and never question it. He asks us to ask him hard questions. Not only that, he invites us to dig and search the scriptures like detectives. I mean, he's not just going to give us the answer to everything we ever desire. He asks us to do some work and dig into this. So let's get started. Let's get started with our first point, setting the scene. Okay. So before we get into today's uh, body of today's text, let's start with a brief review. Review. Let's work from the standpoint that this is a true historical book in every sense. We're going to see uh, hopefully some evidence of this as we go, backed up by archaeology and some other things. Um, it's first and foremost important to note that Jesus Christ himself confirmed the historicity, there's a word for you, the historicity of Jonah in the gospel accounts of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So we call those the synoptic gospels. And Jesus in all three of those is recorded as talking about Jonah. In Matthew 12, 38 through 41, Everett went through this last week, we see that Jonah is directly referenced by Christ. And he specifically says the residents of Nineveh will stand in condemnation of the Pharisees and the Jews. A little more on that later. Okay. Everett led us through last week uh, where, uh, the first couple chapters and talked about how Jonah was a prophet of God. Okay. Prophet of God, he came from the region of Galilee, where Jesus came from. This wasn't called Galilee at the time, but it, he came from Galilee, that region in the area of the divided, in the era of the divided kingdom. So, what you had is the golden age of Israel, 
where they were at their most powerful and wealthy under King Solomon. And then after King Solomon passes away, there is a civil war. And uh, two individuals arise to, in competing for the kingdom in the civil war. And the kingdom is divided into two pieces. The northern kingdom called Israel with its capital at Samaria. And the southern kingdom called Judah with its capital at Jerusalem that we're all familiar with. So Jonah comes along a few hundred years after this split in the northern kingdom of Israel, <coughs> excuse me, when a king named Jeroboam II was on the throne. And like many of the kings of Israel before him, he is noted to have done what is evil in the eyes of the Lord. So during the reign of Jeroboam, idol worship was commonplace. God's commandments were neglected, and those who did say they followed God did so very casually in their lives. Ironically, this is also a time of extraordinary wealth for the northern kingdom of Israel. King Jeroboam II had expanded the nation's borders, and after several years of war with the neighboring uh, empire of Assyria, which we'll talk about in a minute, a time of peace had come on the country. As other military victories had most of their neighbors at bay, Assyria decided they're busy with some other stuff for a while. So with Judah to the south, which was, even though there'd been a split and there were some hard feelings there, they were a relatively peaceful neighbor to the south, and they were an effective barrier against the only other military power, which would have been Egypt. So times were good. Times were really good. Wealth and prosperity were commonplace. Uh, interestingly, many at the time of the common people had winter and summer homes. Okay, this is a... a concept that we hear in our modern day society, uh, people that do that are often considered to be higher income that have two homes that enter in climates that they can go and enjoy at different times of the year. This is something unheard of in the ancient world. And we have everyday folks in Israel uh, having access to that kind of wealth. But to the east lay Assyria, the main enemy of Israel. And Everett talked a little about these guys uh, last week. The Assyrian Empire at the time was under the rule of their king Sennacherib. And this was one of uh, uh, an interesting guy in an interesting empire. It was a ruthless, relentless, cruel power to be reckoned with. I'll spare you the details because, you know, we all got to have lunch after this. But the stories of the torture and brutality that they show their prisoners, this is the stuff of legend at the time. And this is a time when the mistreatment of prisoners was regarded as normal and common. And so even among this time, this was considered, they were over the top. These are bad dudes. Now, we know from the Bible and history that eventually Assyria does conquer Israel and completely destroy its cities and people. Uh, that was something that has been prophesied by a lot of the prophets at the time and does happen. But during this time, uh, two plagues had struck the Assyrians, one in 765 B.C. This led to a brief political revolt. Another one hit in 759 B.C., and it was right after the second plague hit, there was a total eclipse of the sun, which now, total eclipse, we have fun, we all go, you know, it happened a few years ago, people went to Oregon, saw it all. At this time, this was considered a bad omen. Total eclipse of the sun, it's a bad deal, Okay. So for about 100 years, Israel was left in relative peace by Assyria as they dealt with some internal problems and in the, uh, the fallout of the plague and the uh, rebellion. So the city of Nineveh, Nineveh is an interesting place. We saw a little about it in our text today. For most of the history of, of the history of Nineveh, since ancient times, it's been regarded as a legend. 
a city that was talked about a lot in the old days, a lot of legends about, but doesn't really exist. It can't exist. And for, for one reason, the tales of it are extraordinary. Its size, its defenses, and its population all rival modern-day cities today. And so uh, another reason it was so completely destroyed by its enemies, the Medo-Persians, God prophesied that eventually Nineveh would be destroyed, and it was. It was so completely destroyed by the Persians that hundreds of years later, the great uh, Greek general, Alexander the Great, stood on its exact location. This is only a few hundred years after it was destroyed. He stood on its location and wondered if the legendary tales of it were ever true. So, thus, its location wasn't discovered until about 1820, when some English scholars located and ex excavated its ruins near present-day Mosul in Iraq. So, if we look at Jonah, we can see this description of the city. In Jonah 3.3, says it took three days to walk across the city. Three days to walk across the city. In verse 4, uh, when he goes to deliver his message, he goes an entire day into the depths of the city before he stops to deliver his message. Nineveh's defenses, they were something most ancient rulers could only dream of. Okay? The city was surrounded by a double wall with over 1,200 guard towers. Two walls, 1,200 guard towers. The main wall was famous for being over 50 feet thick, and two chariots could be driven along the top ramparts. Okay? Along with these fortifications, Nineveh had two other key advantages to surviving warfare. Uh, in these days, a big, powerful city with a big wall. You're going to attack it. You march your army up. You surround it. And then you camp there for a long time, sometimes years, and you starve the population out until eventually you can breach the wall or they surrender due to starvation and disease. Nineveh didn't have this problem as a rule. They had farms capable of feeding the entire population and livestock and a source of drinking water also able to irrigate the farms within the city walls. So with all these advantages, the population of Nineveh was thought to be well over 600,000. And so this is comparable to a lot of modern cities. Think Denver, Colorado. Denver, Colorado in the ancient world. In the 700s BC, only a handful of other places such as Babylon or Egypt could boast of such power and size, wealth, and military security. So this is the situation we were introduced to last week with Jonah. We saw his command, his disobedience, the results of that. I have to say, I can't really blame Jonah a whole lot. I, I really can't. If we stop and think for a moment, God has commanded him to go to the enemy, his mortal enemy of his country, with this message. This enemy has a reputation for brutality and cruelty and torture of people they don't like, let alone enemies of their nation. And... He was supposed to tell them that God is going to overthrow the city. His message was God's going to overthrow the city. And there's no, like, unless you guys repent or unless things. His message is too much evil, too much sin, you're done. Now, we can all sit back and pretend like, well, you know, a lot of times when I hear this story, it's like, well, Jonah didn't have faith that God knew what he was doing. I'm sorry. I would have probably been like Jonah thinking, this is... God, this, this is a bad idea. This is a really bad idea. Also, these people have been antagonizing my country for some time. While I'm happy that the message is one of judgment against my enemies, why would I warn them? Why would I want to warn them? These people deserve what they have coming to them. 
and God's saying to go there and probably sacrifice my life in a horrible way for these people? Buy me a ticket to anywhere else. So Jonah attempts to flee to Tarshish. And it's, it's interesting, Tarshish is kind of a place, Everett talked on this uh, last week, it was thought some people think Spain, uh, elsewhere, maybe uh, the British Isles. It is, at the time, Tarshish was the furthest destination in the known world. Uh, other parts of scripture talk about Tarshish, talk about the ships of Tarshish being unbreakable. They were so strong. In fact, I think it's in Psalms, it talks about the might of the Lord being able to break the ships of Tarshish. Um, these were ships not built for the relatively calm waters of the Mediterranean. These were uh, ones built for the open seas of the North Atlantic. Also, Tarshish is known to have uh, been heavily involved in the tin industry, which uh, likely indicates England. So he is going to go from Samaria in the Middle East, clear up to England to get away from these guys. So we look at Jonah's, our second point, Jonah's message to Nineveh. So Jonah flees. God pursues, he spends three days in the belly of the fish. We looked at all of that last week, so now we come to chapter 3. Jonah is now free from the fish, he's back on dry land, and God has officially gotten his attention and obedience. So we see God say a second time, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call against it the message that I tell you. How many times in scripture do we see God warn or direct again and again? Here's the almighty creator of the universe repeating himself. I can only think at this point of all the times my parents had to tell me that they weren't going to repeat something again. Then they usually had to, but uh, I can't, I got to be somewhat honest since they're sitting right there. Anyway, um, yet here is God in all of his power telling Jonah once again to be his prophet on what appears to be a suicide mission. This time Jonah listens. He makes his way to Nineveh, which would have been a journey of over a month from Israel. He walks a day into the midst of the vast city and delivers his message of God's judgment. Yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And then something amazing happens. The people believed God. And, well, I'll mention this several times throughout the message, there was no instructions here to repent. No promise that if they turned to God, they would be spared. We see the Jews given a message like that, but not the Ninevites. They call for a fast and to put sack on sackcloth and ashes. Sackcloth is a rough, really uncomfortable, scratchy burlap. Sitting in ashes was a sign of penitence. It was a sign of shame, a sign of sadness. And all the people, royal officials to peasants, over 600,000 people repent on the mere chance that God may relent. We see in verse 9 where the king says, who knows, God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Even the animals participated in the fast. This is not a fast that you see some people do in the modern church where there's fruit juice and water and people are main, you know, watching their hydration throughout the thing. These people put their physical comfort and well-being on the line to show how serious they were. There are a few other interesting details that emerged as I looked at this. Uh, for one, this is occurring shortly after the second plague had uh, ravaged the city and the surrounding countryside. This is right around the time when the second solar eclipse uh, had occurred. So people were nervous. They'd seen the signs in the heavens. They'd already experienced bad, what they considered bad luck or, or something is wrong. Something has turned it against us. Okay? Then 
Something else may have made Jonah stand out. This is kind of just an interesting antidote, but believe it or not, Jonah's not the only guy in history, in historical, historical accounts, to have been swallowed whole by a fish, spent a period of time inside the fish, and then emerged alive. There are several more recent accounts of very unlucky people, uh, some within the last few hundred years, that it, but they've all had one interesting description. So some of these go back to the Middle Ages up into the 1800s, and they all have the same description of what happened. Each time, it appears the digestive enzymes of the fish have permanently stained the skin of the, of the swallowee uh, white. Okay, This is not a, a fair-skinned, like the Irish, kind of white. Uh, they're described as being as white as new parchment, as one account said. Disturbingly white. White as the wall, unnatural. So in a land of dark-skinned people, Jonah's appearance may have been quite noticeable and disturbing. Also among the half-dozen gods worshipped in Nineveh, the fish god, Dagon, was the, one of the prominent ones. You may remember Dagon as being one of the gods of the Philistines back in David's day. So here you are. You're in your city where fish are symbolic of religion. appears a man whose skin is as white as anything you've ever seen. He looks like a ghost. And then he begins to speak. You may ask him, what, you know, what's wrong? I'm sure somebody had to. You know, I would probably be one of those people like, hey, what's, you know, you look weird. What's going on? And he tells you he has been inside of a fish. You're in a city where fish are regarded as sacred with your god Dagon. And you see that this guy is a Jew. He is a representative of the powerful God of Israel. And he tells you that your time is at an end. In 40 days, you will be destroyed. I mean, think about this. This imagery combined with the recent memory of plagues, an eclipse, political upheaval, it convinces you he's right. Your brutal, evil society has angered God. And now you must repent and die. Or maybe, just maybe, if we truly repent, Maybe he'll relent. I mean, what a setup. God, Jonah had no knowledge of this. God putting these pieces together. It's almost like God knows what he's doing, right? And like so many other times in Scripture and in our own life, we see God do things that seem unthinkable, unthinkable, illogical, insane, and then he completely flips the script to bring about a result that no one saw coming. So what a story. Happy endings all around. Isn't it? It would appear so. Jonah learns a lesson about obedience. We see God offer him a second chance. And then we watch as one of the most pagan societies in the ancient world repents and is spared God's wrath. It's a perfect way to wrap this week up. Or is it? Or is it? I can't help but wonder about a few things uh, as we kind of go forward and look at the end of this story. First, we know this isn't the end of Jonah's story. We will see next week when Cole wraps up the book. But there are a couple of things that I'd like to mention briefly. First, I'm, I wonder if I'm the only one that finds Jesus quoting Jonah to be somewhat disturbing in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. In these passes, passages, uh, Jesus is asked for a sign once again by the Pharisees, despite having just cured a demon-possessed man and doing many other miracles. And Christ has clearly had enough of this. And he states that no sign will be given except for the, prophet, the sign of the prophet Jonah, who spent three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, then emerges alive. 
Jesus here was referring to his death and resurrection and the prophetic parallel with Jonah. We saw that last week, but then he finishes. He went on to warn Israel that the people of Nineveh would stand in judgment of them because of their unbelief. That, was the, that, that statement there was true both in Jesus' day and in Jonah's. So Israel and Judah would stand in stark contrast to Nineveh, and not in a good way, not in the way you would hope or think. For decades, God had sent multiple prophets to the people of Israel. Guys like Elijah, Elisha, Amos, and Hosea, they were all sent with warnings of the coming destruction of the people if they did not repent. Many of the evil things that were going on in Nineveh were going on in Israel. And not only that, but the southern kingdom prophets of Isaiah and Micah, Isaiah being a very famous one we study all the time, they warned their neighbors to the north to repent and return to obedience to God. And year after year, decade after decade, for 200 years, God pleads with Israel. In Hosea, 4, 1 through 2, God lays out his case. So Hosea was a contemporary prophet with Jonah. So as Jonah's being eaten by a fish and going to Nineveh, Hosea is ministering to the people in Israel. And he lays out the, the state of Israel in, in, uh, with God. So he says, Hear the word of the Lord, O children of, the, children of Israel. For the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love, and no knowledge of God in the land. There is swearing, lying, murder, stealing, and committing adultery. They break all bounds, and bloodshed follows bloodshed. God mourns over his people in verse 6 of the same chapter, when he says, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. I reject you from being a priest to me. And since you have forgotten the law of your God, I, will forget, I, will, I also will forget your children. This theme of God's sadness, his anger at Israel's sin, and his warnings of the coming judgment and destruction go through about the first 13 chapters of Hosea. We get to the end of Hosea, chapter 14, God pleads with Israel to return to him. If they will but repent, return to him with their hearts and actions, God will bring joy. He'll bring comfort, healing, and they will dwell in his delight. And much like the Jews in Jesus' day, they looked at Hosea and they laughed. Times were good. King Jeroboam II was leading his people to amazing material wealth. They were masters of their own fate. Who was he, this prophet, to tell them anything? Compare this with Nineveh, the capital city of the brutal Assyrian Empire, where a pagan people with little knowledge of God heard a warning from someone they'd never seen before. And whereas the people of Israel knew that God was sending the prophets, they chose to ignore and mock and abuse them. Nineveh took this unknown stranger and they took him at his word. And unlike Israel, there was no pleading for repentance like God did with Israel, no promise of future good in the man's words, only the statement that their time of evil was at an end in 40 days. And with that simple, severe message from a foreigner, the most powerful city, the most wealthy city in the ancient world repented. Every beggar, every merchant, every official, up to and including the king. And as I mentioned earlier, fasting was and still is considered to be a way of showing God just how serious you are about something. And Nineveh voluntarily, without any instructions, took on one of the most serious fasts that I've ever seen. No water, no food for anyone, including the animals. No wonder they stand 
in judgment of, both, uh, of Israel in both Jonah's day and later in Christ's. So what's the message to us? So what of today? I'm sure many of you have already started to think about the parallels to our modern world. When we look at America today, uh, when we look at the church today, the church in America, do we see similarities to Jonah's Israel? Compared to past generations, the America of the 2000s is truly the land of plenty. And when, I guess when I say 2000s, maybe think the early 2000s, let's go 2020s, even today, with high inflation. Most Americans spend less than 10% of their time earning the food that they eat. Some studies have said that out of each workday, the average person spends nine minutes of work earning the money that will pay for the food that they eat that day. Now, this is an average. It doesn't necessarily mean that in this community that's the case. But for the rest of the globe, this clearly is not how things go. There, uh, most people spend all day working for the one meager meal that they will consume just that day alone. And we're comfortable here. We are comfortable relative to the rest of the world. And now I want to be clear, this is not uh, a tax the rich or down with the 1% message. We're not talking about uh, the evils of wealth or money or plenty. That's, that's not the message here. This is a call to look hard at our lives. The wealthy, comfortable men of Israel saw no need for God. Do we? Do we follow God's commands? Do we place him above our possessions in our hearts? Do we place him above our comfort, above our children, which are so often I see a form of idol within the church? And what I mean by that, I, I once heard a pastor say that, and you could almost hear the audible, <gasps> you know, from the, from the congregation. But he went on to say, I have watched uh, uh, husbands and wives sacrifice their marriage, sacrifice their relationship with God, sacrifice their service in the church, all for the fulfillment and comfort and enjoyment of their children. Are we willing to heed God's warnings that the things we so often place above him are going to lead our sinful hearts to destruction? Have we lost our knowledge of God, as Hosea says? Will it be our destruction? The people of Israel gave lip service to God, an occasional tip of the hat to him as they passed by in pursuit of their own enjoyment and lives. He was not the almighty God who saves, who judges, and who is before all. So why listen to the men who say that he's anything else? These are and these should be sobering thoughts. It's easy to look around at our society uh, and apply everything I just said to it. It's easy to look outside the church and apply that. But keep in mind that God was not speaking to the Gentiles through his prophets. He was talking to his people. And now God speaks to us through his written word instead of the prophets. And when we read examples from scripture uh, like this, who would he be speaking to today? Who would he be talking to today? I must say, i got to be honest. All too often in my own attitude, in my own life, um, I am just like the people of Israel. Just like the people of Israel. I'm occupied with my own comfort, the own idols in my life, and the dissatisfaction I have with the way God is doing things for me. I need to heed the word of the prophets here. And it's not that our secular society is exempt from God's judgment for sin, just like Nineveh. He is watching with sadness and anger as sin, murder, 
theft, lust, adultery, and everything else common to sinful man plays itself out around us just like it did in Assyria. Ecclesiastes 1.9 couldn't say it any better when it says, What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. So is that the message of Jonah 3? A warning to all men regarding the wrath of God against sin. Well, maybe. Yeah, I mean, it's in there. But that's not the only thing I want to leave you with today. I mentioned earlier that God told Jonah a second time to go to Nineveh. After a harsh lesson, Jonah got a second chance. Later, we see God, despite not telling the people, giving Nineveh a second chance after its repentance. So, amongst all of this, we see a God willing to forgive, willing to spare, and willing to save and turn away his anger. We also saw this was the same message to Israel in Hosea, where he tells them, come back to me. I love you. I will forgive you if you truly turn from sin and return to me. We can look and uh, see God's redemption in our own lives, where despite our sin and all of its horrible and sickening evil, God, through the death of his son Jesus, declares us forgiven when we truly turn from our sin and accept his gift of life. This gift is free, and it's permanent. It's available today to any willing to accept Christ as Lord of their lives. And I encourage you, if you don't yet know God, to seek out one of us elders or Pastor Adam or any of the believers here if you want to know more. And for those of us who've already accepted Christ, I'd like to leave you with something to consider. Uh, many times in life, we can feel defeated uh, in our walk with Christ, defeated in our sin. And while we're no longer slaves to sin, sin can, can and still does plague believers. It makes us ineffective in our ministry. It makes us feel distant from God. And at its worst, it can derail our lives. If God was willing to forego, for a time, the judgment of Nineveh, a city whose people did not know God or worship him, how much more amazing is his gift of forgiveness for those who are his? Psalm 103.12, it's a famous psalm, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. His promises are true, and we can take him at his word. We are forgiven. And even when, like Jonah, we directly disobey and run from him, God, in his mercy, pursues us. And like Jonah, in his mercy, he corrects us. His mercy is even there when we experience punishment or consequences for our sin. It's an odd thing to think of punishment as mercy and love, but a loving God, like a loving parent, is willing to do what it takes to turn the hearts of his children back to him. And finally, like Jonah... He restores us. When we turn from sin, from our disobedience, and follow him in action and attitude with our hearts and minds, and confess our sins, he is faithful and just, to forgive our sins and to cleanse us, as it says in the Bible, and to restore us. We are free from sin, free from the fear of death, held fast by a God who will never let us go. The God of Jonah, who can and does ask us to walk in faith into situations we find fearful, uncomfortable, situations that are dangerous even. He's the God who flips the script, who takes our pain, suffering, our fears, and brings something amazing out of it that no one imagined. Take comfort here as well. So many times in life, God's, God puts things in our lives that make no sense, 
He asks us to walk through terrible hardship. He denies us something we desperately want, or like Jonah, he asks us to do something we do not want to do. And when that happens, we can know, like Jonah discovered, that he is acting in ways we cannot comprehend. He uses us to bring about things that only an infinite God could foresee. With this knowledge, Christians have withstood sickness, the loss of children, financial ruin, persecution, and death for thousands of years. Your sadness, suffering, and pain is not in vain. The Almighty God of our fathers is king over all and working to move his plan forward, and he invites you and me to participate in that plan in both our joys and our sorrows, and our triumphs and our disappointments. He has given me and you a second chance, forgiving our sin, adopting us as sons and daughters, and asks us, asks us to live for him in faith and action. All praise to God for his faithfulness and love. This has been a podcast from Grace Church of Mabton. For more information, visit our website at mabtongbc.org.